Thank you, my brother. It's uh, always wonderful to be here and delight to hear you singing. That's one of the things that always impresses me about Calvary Bible is to hear you sing. And it was the same with the conference the other night. For those of you that were here, uh, we had a great start. We sang some songs to start off the conference, and this, this place was just filled with worship. And I thought it was a wonderful way to get started. Uh, don't let uh, the numbers, or uh, from my perspective as pastor of counseling at uh, First Baptist, don't let the numbers impress you, because that just means a whole lot of souls to take care of, and uh, don't let the city blocks impress you, because that just means a lot of buildings that need to be repaired, and uh, they leak, and uh, there's nothing impressive about that at all. Uh, I found one thing about the through the years, it's very easy for buildings to run a ministry instead of them... Uh, just being tools for ministry, and they can control budgets, and uh, that's a shame when that happens. And we have nine city blocks of that kind of stuff that we have to take care of, which means a whole lot of maintenance. But uh, we, when you think about us, pray for us, uh, because we are trying to, by the grace of God, see First Baptist Church be turned into a disciple-making machine uh, for the glory of God. And uh, that means a whole lot of training has to take place, and uh, souls need to be impacted, again, for the glory of God. As Dan said, so I'm going to do a little bit of propaganda and then uh, pray for us, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 18 this morning. Uh, but Dan said, I still have the privilege of chairing the online degree in biblical counseling at Masters University, and because of where we are with technology uh, these days, uh, you can get a whole bachelor's degree um, we have 15, I think it's 15 different areas where you can get a, a degree totally online at master's. You can get all your gen eds, um, English, history, science, everything. And then the uh, degree in biblical counseling has 48 core uh, units of core classes. And we have students from all over the world getting a distinctive master's university uh, education. And I'm really thankful that I get to still dabble in academics even though they're on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast. I was doing some grading this morning. That's the downside, uh, <laughs> is I still have to do grading. But uh, I was interacting with students uh, from many different states this morning in my hotel room on a forum. Uh, they were discussing uh, the Nashville statement on gender identity and the TMU statement on uh, biblical sexuality because the module they just went through was what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality. And uh, so very interesting interaction going on on the forum right now. So that's what I was doing uh, along with looking over my sermon this morning. So I brought with me some information, and I'm just going to put it right down here, and you can come up front and get it. This is about the Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Counseling, uh, which is the online degree. Our average age is 35, which was kind of a shock to me. I thought we were going to get a lot of high school students wanting to do dual enrollment and things like that. We do have quite a few of those, but our average age is 35. It's adults going back to finish a bachelor's degree uh, that they never finished. So it's uh, been delightful to uh, interact with them. So I'm just going to put these right over here, and we're going to pray, and we're going to have a wonderful time looking at David's testimony in Psalm 18. So please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the privilege of opening your word. This is always very humbling uh, for me to think that I can stand in front of a group of people and explain your words. So we commit the time to you, and I pray along with David that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, I realize that without you we can do nothing, so we commit this time to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open eyes, open ears, that you would soften our hearts. This has to be your work, Lord, or nothing will be accomplished. I pray that the hearers would be receptive uh, right now and be tender to your word. And Father, I thank you that you're here with us because you said you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for what you're doing at Calvary Bible Church. Thank you for the conference. Thank you for what you're doing through biblical counseling around the world. And uh, we just, Lord, are just humbled by the privilege of being reconciled to you through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, that we can even talk to you now, which is beyond our puny, puny minds, puny souls' ability to even comprehend what we're doing, that we're talking to you, the almighty God of the universe. 
Thank you for David's testimony. Lord, we want to have a David-like testimony, so teach us from your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 18, and while you're turning, I'd like to tell you about a powerful testimony I heard when I was in high school. The Lord uses uh, testimonies as powerful tools in our lives, and I had the uh, experience of that when I was in high school. I had the privilege of working for an organization called Youth for Christ. I'm not even sure if Youth for Christ is around anymore, but I worked for Youth for Christ, and uh, what we did with Youth for Christ in where I grew up in Maryland was we would bring in big-name speakers, and we would have these big youth rallies. And one of the speakers that we brought in was a woman named Corey Ten Boom. And so I had the privilege of hearing Corey Ten Boom in person. Now, there's not a whole lot of things that I remember from my teenage years uh, at this point in my life, but uh, that was a very distinctive memory. Let me tell you what stood out in my mind. Uh, we had a couple thousand people come to pack a high school auditorium when Corey Ten Boom came, and it's the only time in my life that I have seen somebody receive a standing ovation before she even spoke. Uh, she was introduced, walked into the room, and she got a standing ovation. Uh, just, she had just been introduced. She hadn't even said a word. Uh, that got my attention as a teenager. I thought, wow, there must be something special about this little old gray-haired, stoop-shouldered lady that's hobbling down the aisle in front of everyone. And then as she began to unfold her story of horrific suffering in the concentration camp in Germany and telling about her father's death, telling about her sister's death in the, the, uh, the bunkhouse there and about their abuse, she uh, began to talk about her forgiveness. And I thought, wow, there is something real about this woman. How can you forgive with all of this horrific suffering uh, her testimony impressed me. Uh, her testimony was of survival, and it was directly related to the depth of her relationship with the Lord. I have burned into my mind, I can still picture her standing there on that platform, and she was talking about how clinging to the promises of God's word and what her sister Betsy taught her in the midst of that horrific suffering is what got her through the embarrassment and the, the trials of living in that concentration camp. And then she gave us this uh, wonderful illustration from Colossians chapter 3, and she was saying something like, we would have never survived unless I would have believed that my life is hidden with Christ in God. And she said, "There is." I had to remember that those guards could not get to me unless they got through my God, unless they got through Jesus Christ first. Uh, that was burned into my mind. Uh, one of the main things I took away from that testimony was how real this woman's relationship with the Lord was. And I remember thinking, Lord, I want that reality. I want a real relationship with you. And through the years, that has led me to ask the question, how do you have depth of relationship with the Lord. And I've come to the conclusion that it's directly related to the pressures of life and how you respond to the pressures of life. That it's in the midst of the boiling pot of life that a godly walk is distilled. And you know, that's exactly what you see in Psalm 18. If you look at David's testimony in Psalm 18, you see that it's not apart from, but it's in the midst of all the pressures of life that his godly walk was distilled. Now, that means that in the midst of the pressures of life, I've got to make some choices in my soul of what am I going to turn to to deal with the pressures of life. And that's exactly what you see David doing in Psalm 18. He's making some very conscious choices to deal with life, and he uses these wonderful metaphors of how he deals with the pressures of life that he's consciously turning to the Lord as his rock. He's, uh, he's consciously turning to the Lord as his fortress. He's consciously turning to the Lord as his deliverer. And as I've meditated on this psalm, I've realized my soul is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love that, as was just prayed, Lord, it is so easy 
to turn to other rocks in the midst of the pressures of life. It is so easy to turn to other deliverers in the midst of the pressures of life. So my challenge for us this morning as, I, as we read Psalm 18, or as we study Psalm 18, is to get you to think, what are you turning to to deal with the pressures of life? And if you want depth of relationship with the Lord, and you want real, vivid, vital relationship with the Lord, like Corey Tenboom and David, you're going to have to challenge your soul. What are your rocks? What are your refuges? What are your fortresses? Uh, let me read part of this, and then I want to tell you some things that are distinct about this psalm of why I believe it deserves your special attention. Uh, I believe this is a distinct psalm in the whole book of Psalms, and I'll explain why in a moment. But let me read verses 1 to 6, and I'm going to read the little print up at the top because that's actually verse 1 in Hebrew. So verse 1 in Hebrew says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. If you read the rest of the psalm, you see that it's a psalm of God's mighty deliverance in the midst of the horrific storms of life. And that's, I was rereading it this morning, and the word pictures that David uses all through the psalms of, it's like a storm, and God is riding upon the clouds to intervene in David's life. And it's God's mighty deliverance in the midst of the horrific storms of David's life. Uh, what made David's testimony with the Lord real? It's how he responded to the pressures of life. What made Corey Tenboom's testimony real? It's how she responded to the pressures of life, how she dealt with the pressures of life. So let me tell you some reasons. I'm going to give you two biblical reasons and one extra biblical reason why this is a, a special psalm. So here's two biblical reasons. Uh, you read that, you read those metaphors, and you go, well, what's special about that? Uh, the other Psalms talk about God being a rock and God being a fortress and God being a refuge. Well, here's where you're wrong. There's no other Psalm that has this many metaphors all in one place. This is the Psalm that has metaphor piled upon metaphor piled upon metaphor. It is like David is trying to think of every uh, word picture that he can think of to describe who God is to him. He's not holding anything back. He's the rock the fortress, the deliverer, the refuge, the shield, the horn of salvation. He's the stronghold. So that's my first reason why this is a distinctive psalm that deserves your special attention. The second reason is because there aren't very many passages of Scripture that get quoted in their entirety in another place in the Bible. Did you know that this is 2 Samuel 22? This is almost word for word as 2 Samuel 22. In fact, I don't know of another whole passage of Scripture that gets quoted in another place in the Bible. It deserves your special attention. You ought to spend some time meditating in Psalm 18. So those are my two biblical reasons. Now let me give you an extra biblical reason. My extra biblical reason is this man named Isaac Watts. I'm sure you've heard of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, pastor, theologian who lived in the 1700s, one of the greatest hymn writers in recent centuries. Uh, Isaac Watts is a brilliant man. I have an 1802 hymnal that is an Isaac Watts hymnal, and I use it for my devotions. Now, part of the Isaac Watts hymnal is not just hymns, but what he did was he took every psalm and he wrote a hymn tying in the psalm with New Testament theology. It was brilliant. Every psalm has a hymn, a poem that's in the form of a hymn, and then he ties in the gospel 
with all through the Psalms. They're beautiful to read. Now, here's what's important about that. For most of the Psalms, he has one. For some of the Psalms, he has two, maybe three. For Psalm 18, he has eight versions of Psalm 18. Isaac Watts thought that this was a special Psalm. I, just, I believe it deserves your special attention, that you go back and you meditate on what do all these metaphors mean? So as I've mentioned, that I, I believe that it's through real life and how we respond to real life that a godly walk is shaped. So let's look at real life for David. What is the pressure that he faced? Let me remind you, so I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 again, and we're going to look at the pressure David faced. It's real life, and guess what it is? It's people pressure. <laughs> Do any of you have people pressure right now? You know why we can relate to the Psalms so much? One of the reasons we can relate to the Psalms so much is because they're so real to life. I got geeky about studying David's uh, Psalms one time, and I thought I was studying Psalm 28, and it's all about people pressure. This one's about people pressure. And I thought, I wonder how many of the Psalms David talks about people pressure. So, uh, as you may already know, David wrote about half the Psalms. So I looked at every Davidic Psalm and asked myself, what's the context of the Davidic Psalm? And here's what I found out. The context of two-thirds of David's Psalms was people pressure. So here we are being ministered to thousands of years later because David went through people pressure. Now, we don't want to wish ill on David, but aren't you glad that he had people pressure so that we could be ministered to these thousands of years later? In the midst of David's people pressure, he makes the Lord his rock, his refuge, his fortress. Let's read about it. The pressure David faced. The cords, verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Let's Let's uh, use our sanctified imagination here a little bit. The cords of death encompassed me. David is describing feeling wrapped up in cords, and he's in water. Torrents, imagine how horrifying this would be. You're wrapped up, and you're in torrents. You're in waves of unprincipled. The Hebrew word ungodliness is unprincipled. I'm all wrapped up. And I'm being tossed around in the waves of unprincipled people. You ever feel that way in the midst of our culture? Just I'm surrounded by waves, torrents of unprincipled people. And David is all wrapped up with the cords of death. Now this is just, it's not just metaphorical for David. They really wanted to kill him. All you have to do is read the historical books and you know how many times people wanted to kill David, especially the king, King Saul, and he talks about that up in what is verse 1 in the Hebrew. But this psalm is not just about Saul. It's like David is reflecting. It seems for me from 2 Samuel 22 that this is at the end of David's life, and he is reflecting back on all the people problems he had. If you look at the context of 2 Samuel 22, because one of the next chapters is called The Last Words of David in 2 Samuel so this seems like this is at the end of David's life, and he's reflecting back on all of his people problems and how God delivered him in the midst of the people problems. Now, just to try to make this vivid, and uh, maybe it's been your experience, and it's certainly been my experience, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Here's what I, I picture, and uh, I'm going to make a reference to a movie. Uh, think about the Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and you're on, the Black Pearl has just pulled up beside your little boat. <laughs> and all those ghost pirates are wet, pouring onto your boat and taking over your boat. The torrents of the ungodly are terrifying me. They're overcoming me. He says in verse 5, The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Now how do I respond? How did he respond to the people pressure? He tangibly, purposely calls upon the Lord. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. More about that later. 
Let me remind you of the principle again. David went through intense pressure in life. And as we go through intense pressure, God has purposes for that. Uh, the way I was taught this many years ago was this, that the purpose of pr trials is to prove God's grace in us for our growth and his glory. But through this year, through other theological influences, or through the years, I've added a statement to that. It's not just to prove God's grace in us for our growth and his glory. It's to prove God's grace in us for our growth, his glory, and our true joy. Because the Lord uses those trials to wean us from the things that we think we need, like the approval of people or our hope in finances, the other things that we think we need to give us security in the midst of the pressures of life, because he wants to be our true joy. Let me make this statement again that I did at the beginning, that it's through the boiling pot of life that a godly walk is distilled. Corey Ten Boom, in the midst of that concentration camp, had to wrestle with her soul. She had to wrestle with her soul. How am I going to respond to this? Where is God in this? Who is God in this? Am I going to be bitter? Am I going to grow in my relationship with the Lord? Am I really going to believe the truths of Scripture that say that my life is hidden with Christ in God? Or is that just going to be kind of a, a promise, something on the pages of Scripture that has no reality to my life? David had depth of relationship with the Lord because in a real life with real people who really wanted to kill him, he's making choices in his soul. Let's look at some of the choices, and that's my second point, David's personal testimony. So let's look at his testimony, and as I mentioned, there are more metaphors here than in any other place in the Psalms, and I'll just tell you now, we're not going to have time to go through them all, and I'm actually in the middle of the metaphors, so we're going to take about, maybe about half of them, and I want to challenge our thinking with what, these what David's trying to get us to do here, but I'm going to jump out of this psalm and show you that this is a bigger theme in Scripture and in the Psalms that the scripture warns us regularly that our souls are going to want to cling, cling to other rocks, that our souls are going to want to put our hope in something that is not a worthy object of our hope. We'll get there in just a moment. But notice how intensely personal this is. It's incredibly relational. Uh, he says, I love you, O Lord my strength. I love you. Mighty King David. I was uh, praying this morning, praying for our service, praying, thinking through this psalm, and as I was praying, my brain just got snagged on that. Here's mighty David, who was leading the nation, who has led armies in battle, and scripture says has killed thousands, and he's crying. Here's mighty David who's saying, I love you. Now, let's think about that for a moment because this is a really intriguing word. This is not the normal Hebrew word for love. Uh, ladies, you will especially appreciate this, and I'd like you to turn to Psalm 22, if you would, just a couple pages over. Psalm 22, I want to show you this Hebrew word. This is the Hebrew word for the womb. Does that get your attention? Look at Psalm 22.10. It's the exact same Hebrew word for the womb, rakam. Psalm 22.10, upon you I was cast from my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. A deep place of closeness and intimacy. Let me show you how else it's translated. Turn with me to Psalm 116, verse 5. It's translated love. In the New American Standard, in Psalm 18, it's translated womb in Psalm 22. In Psalm 116, look at how it's translated. This is the kind of relationship I want to have with the Lord. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is Rakam. He's compassionate. Now, here's what I'm understanding Psalm 18 to be telling me in many other places in Scripture is that the Lord wants to be that with you. The Lord wants to be in relationship with you. In fact, he sacrificed tremendously so that you can be in relationship with him by sending his son 
our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can be reconciled to him. So what's the problem? It's, the problem's not that God, God doesn't want to be in relationship with you. He wants to be your rakam. He wants you to be able to love him. So it's not him. So the problem must be me. <laughs> what am I doing to turn, what am I turning to to deal with the pressures of life or what is robbing me of my intimacy with the Lord is the conclusion that I'm, I'm coming to. If I, the Lord wants to be my rock. He wants to be my rakam. He wants to be my fortress. But I've got to make choices to tangibly turn to the Lord as my rock and my fortress. It's those things that I tend to turn to that are robbing me of my intimacy with the Lord. I'm actually robbing myself. I could be in relationship, a deeper, more meaningful relationship with the Lord if I would discipline my soul to make him my rock instead of other things, him my fortress instead of other things, him my deliverer instead of other things. Uh, that was the key to David's testimony. That's the key to Corey Ten Boom's testimony. What did, what did she do with the promises of God? By a vigorous act of her soul, she chose to believe that what God's word is true in the midst of the intense problems of her, of her life. And David's knowing the exact same thing. Let's start looking at these metaphors. And uh, they are very potent. He could have said, by the way, the Lord, would this have been a true statement? The Lord is a rock. Would that have been a true statement? Absolutely. The Lord is a fortress. The Lord is a deliverer. He would have just been reciting biblical truth. But he adds the personal pronoun there. The Lord is my rock. He is choosing to believe that these things are true for him. Now, obviously, the Lord is not a literal rock, so he, he is saying the Lord's like a rock. It's a simile. So what's he trying to get us to think? I, and I personally believe he's not just trying to be a creative writer here and use all kinds of different metaphors. He wants to stimulate your thinking. In what way is God like a rock? In what way is God like a fortress? In what way is God a deliverer? In what way is God the horn of my salvation? So let's start thinking about it. And by the way, there are all kinds of counseling implications to this passage. Because I deal with people all the time that are turning to other things as their rocks, their fortresses, their deliverers to deal with the pressures of life. Uh, this first word for rock, in the New American Standard, there's actually two words for rock. And this, uh, this first one for rock is a rocky outcropping. And uh, imagine a jutting up rock that has crevices and crags behind it. Can you uh, picture that in your mind? Just a really big outcropping of rock, and there's crevices in it. He's picturing God is the place where I hide in the midst of the rocks. Now, that's very vivid for David because he had to do that. He had to hide in the Judean desert against those that were coming after him. Where we lived in Southern California, we had this place called Vasquez Rocks near us. And you've actually seen it, even though you don't know what you were seeing, because it's been in hundreds of movies and hundreds of car commercials. Uh, it was about eight miles from our house, and it's this incredible rock formation and this one rock formation juts up almost 200 feet, and you can see that the strata is going this way when it should have been this way, and it's jutting up about 200 feet in the air, and I'm glad I wasn't around when that happened, aren't you? <laughs> uh, that's what I picture with this first word for rock. It's a place to hide. Uh, there's all kinds of crevices in that big jagged rock that sticks up. The Lord is my place to hide. Uh, what is he picturing? The Lord is my security. The Lord is my rock. I think of my counselees, the pe people I'm discipling, and I, I see them turning to all kinds of things as a place to hide. I see people running to drugs. I see people running to alcohol. I see people running to sex. I see people running even as something that can be uh, seemingly innocent as entertainment. I'm just watching a movie but it's their way to deal with the pressure of life. It's what represents, it's my place to hide. It's my place to escape. The Lord, he says, is my rock. And then he says, the Lord is my fortress. Uh, this is another very interesting Hebrew word. 
Uh, maybe you're familiar with a place in the desert in Israel called Masada. Uh, this is the Hebrew word Masad. Let me try to describe, and I'm not going to do this justice, but let me look up sometime, just do a quick Google search on Masada, and you will be impressed. Uh, think of a mesa, what we might call a mesa in the southwest of the United States. But this is a huge mesa, and it's in the desert in Israel, and it was 1,300 feet high. So think mesa, 1,300 feet high on one side, 1,800 feet long, 900 feet wide. Now, what's so important about this mesa? Well, Herod built a palace up there that had 70 rooms and 30 towers and 4,300 feet of walls. Now, just to make it tangible, it is four football fields high, six football, we're in football season, so I thought this would help your brains. We're college, in college football season. My team lost the other day. We won't get sidetracked on that, though. Um, very embarrassing loss, though. Uh, I'll tell you, Virginia Tech. Um, it was a very embarrassing loss. Four football fields high, high, um, three football fields wide, six football fields long, with 4,300 feet of walls that were 12 feet thick with a palace of 70 rooms built on one side that had 30 tower, guard towers around the walls. It also had cisterns. Herod built this incredible watering system. It had cisterns that held hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. Uh, that's what David's picturing here. God is my Masada. Uh, he's my fortress. When do you need a Masad? What's When the pressure's on. The enemy's uh, putting pressure on you. So that leads me to ask the question, what do we run to to deal with the pressure of life? What do we deal when the enemy's after us, when life just seems too hard? What are the things that your soul tends to turn to, to deal with the pressures of life? And I would challenge you, lovingly challenge you, that by continuing to run to those things, you're robbing yourself of intimacy with the Lord that if you would wean yourself away from those things and say, no, I want the Lord to be my rock. I want the Lord to be my Masad in the midst of the pressure of life, that you too can have a David-like testimony. You too can have a Corey Ten Boom-type testimony. And I hope it won't have to be because you go to concentration camp. <laughs> that in the midst of your pressures, whatever life has brought your way, then in the midst of the boiling pot that you face, probably people problems, because that's very human, that's very typical, that you consciously turn to the Lord to be your rock, your Masada, to deal with the pressures of life. One more, and then we're going to jump out of this psalm just for a moment. He says, the Lord is my deliverer. Uh, this word, deliverer, is actually used as the one who comes and intervenes in the life of refugees. You ever felt like a refugee? You ever felt like, I don't, I'm running, I don't have anybody on my side, there is nobody to defend me? I was using this psalm, I was preaching in South Africa, and I didn't realize the audience I was speaking to, but we were studying Psalm 18, and it was the first time I had met real refugees. They came up to me afterwards and they said, that was very meaningful, Psalm 18, because there were people living on the street outside of the uh, South African embassy in Johannesburg because they had escaped from the massacres in Zaire. And uh, they came to me and said, that was very meaningful to tell me that the Lord is my deliverer as a refugee. And that brought whole new meaning to this psalm for me. I felt like a refugee before. I don't have anywhere else to turn. doesn't seem like I have anybody on my side. It's very meaningful that the Lord is my deliverer. He's my rock. He's my fortress. Well, that leads to the natural application question of who do you turn to to deal with the pressures of life? Do you tangibly first turn to someone else and the phone call, I need help, or do you tangibly go to the Lord in prayer? Is the Lord your deliverer? Now, it intrigues me, and I'm going to use this as a jumping off point to show you a bigger theme in the, the Psalms and in all of Scripture 
uh, it's very interesting to me that right here, almost in the middle of all the metaphors, doesn't it get your attention? My rock, my fortress, my deliverer. So metaphor, 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 my God. And he doesn't use the word Yahweh. He doesn't use the personal name God. He goes back to Elohim. So as a Bible student, that gets my attention. And I, I ask myself, okay, David, why did you do that? Why did you go from metaphor, 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 and back to my God, and then back to metaphor, 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 metaphor? So almost right in the middle, he says, he doesn't use Lord. He says God. So that really got my curiosity. Why does he skip to the general name for God instead of the personal name of God? Well, reading through this very psalm, I think he gives us an answer. Turn with me, just, or if you have to turn your page, but turn to verse 31. Look at verse 31. I believe he tells us the answer. Why does he, right in the middle of the metaphors, why does he go to Elohim? So verses 30 and 31. As for God... His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. Let me just stop and comment on that. The word of the Lord has been put through the crucible and has been found that it works. The Lord has been tried. It's been tested. The draw, there's no dross. It's been through the smelter and it works. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Now, don't miss verse 31. Why does he use the name Elohim? And he switches from Lord to the general name of God. I believe that what David is saying is, I don't want to have any other gods. I don't want to have false rocks. I don't want to have false refuges. Look at verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? What's the answer? No one. And who is a rock except our God? Answer, no one. Uh, what's he implying? He's implying that there are imposters. <laughs> there are imposters that want to be my rock. There are imposters that claim to be God, but they're not the real God. The only real God is the Lord. He's the only real rock. Now, if you take that thinking and you go back to the beginning of the psalm when he says, the Lord's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God... You can understand it to mean, I do not want to violate the first commandment. I do not want to have any other gods before me. I do not want to bow down to false rocks, false refuges, and false fortresses. Now, is that biblical thinking? Let me give you an extra biblical quote, and then I want to show you that this is biblical thinking, and it really challenges me, and it's so picturesque, it helps my counselees get their head wrapped around, okay, what are my rocks? What are my fortresses? What do I tend to turn to to deal with life's pressure? What do I think will bring me stability? What do I think will bring rest to my soul? And there's so many things that the human soul is prone to, and I'm, I'm going to show you three areas, uh, both in the Psalms that we're warned about and outside of the Psalms. But let me give you an extra-biblical quote first, and this is from Martin Luther, so Martin Luther said in his greater catechism, a God, small g, is that which we look for all good and which we find, notice his wording, and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. As I've often said, the trust, and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. That to which our heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. What's he implying? He's implying that it's easy to claim that the God of the universe is my God, but how do I deal with the pressures of life? That when I'm under pressure, what my heart clings to and entrusts itself, he's saying, is really your God. What do I turn to to be my stability? What do I turn to to be my security? Let me show you that this is just biblical thinking. And I'm going to show you three common areas. So we're going to jump out of Psalm 18 for a moment. And I'm, uh, I, I want to help you understand biblical thinking about human nature. Humans are tempted to make other things our hopes. Humans are tempted to make other things our loves. 
And we're warned over and over in Scripture to not do that. There's something better. Psalm 52. Very common temptation, especially in the United States of America, to make money and material possessions our stability. Psalm and Scripture warns us very in very strong language about not doing that. Psalm 52, 7 and 8. Notice how strong it is. Please take it as a warning from the Lord. Behold, verse 7, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Scripture says that that's just evil. Evil to make money, how much money you have, your security. But notice the contrast in verse 8. The godly person, but as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Now, there's a lot of wrestling of the soul in there. You're not, you're not seeing the psalmist say that he's wrestling with his soul, but we know human nature well enough to know, boy, that takes wrestling with the soul. Uh, are you, can you be tempted with, if I had just more money in my bank account, if my IRAs were bigger, if I had more stocks in the stock market, then I could have peace, then I could have security. Scripture says that's an evil desire. I need to make the Lord my rock. I need to trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Let's go to a New Testament passage that warns about the same thing because I'm trying to show you this is just biblical thinking about human nature. Be careful of where you put your hope. Be careful of what you're trusting in. 1 Timothy 6.17. So none other than Paul warns us of the same thing. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be proud, not to be conceited. Notice the next wording. Or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Um, let me just remind you that he doesn't say that money is evil. If you look up above in verse 10, that's not the teaching of Scripture. Verse 10 says, For it's the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, notice the words, these are inner person words, love of money, longing for it. If I just had more, they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. We're going to come back to verse 11 toward the end of the message, but verse 11 says, flee from these things, you man of God, and turn from those and pursue this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That's the first warning of false rocks, false refuges, false hopes, and it's a warning in Scripture of money, material possessions, are not a worthy object for security in our lives. Here's the next one. Turn to Psalm 146. It's a warning about making people your primary rock and refuge. Aren't we prone to this? If I just had the love of that person if this person just loved me more, if we just had the right political leader, then everything would be all right. We should have learned our lesson by now on that one, shouldn't we? <laughs> Look at Psalm 146. I'll start with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust... Don't put your hope. The, the word trust here, by the way, is translated hope in other places. It's my favorite Hebrew word, batak. Do, doesn't that sound weird? I have a favorite Hebrew word. Uh, do not trust, do not hope in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs and returns to the earth in that very day. His, the Hebrew word, it says thoughts here, but it's the Hebrew word plans. The day he dies, all of his plans for the, the political leader's plans die. Don't put your hope in a political leader. Now look at the contrast. How blessed, though, is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope 
is in the Lord his God. Why is he a worthy object of hope, unlike a, a mere human? Because he made heaven and earth. There's substance to him. He can stand behind all of his promises. He made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And he takes care of justice for the oppressed. And he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. One of the things that you see regularly with this study of human nature in both the Old and New Testament is that humans have a tendency to hope and love and trust and put faith in the wrong things, make the wrong things our rock, our refuge, our fortress. And the challenge there is from Scripture, that's not a worthy object. Hope can be no more substantial than the substance of the object. And that's why he then, in verse 6, says, why should you trust the Lord? Because he has substance. He's the creator. He's worthy of your trust. My bank account doesn't have substance. Um, political leaders don't have substance, especially compared to the Lord. That's the second warning. It's a well-placed trust in the Lord instead of a well-placed trust in a political leader. Let's look at the last one, and this is in the New Testament, and it's, what are you loving? It's 2 Timothy, uh, actually 1 Timothy, chapter 3, no, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and it's uh, telling us about the, the last days. Amen. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and every time I read this passage, I think I'm living in, the, in these days. <laughs> 2 Timothy, chapter 3. He says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be, and notice the inner person words, please, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Here's the part I wanted you to see. What are you loving? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What am I loving? What does my soul love? I see this type of thinking back in Psalm 18. David in Psalm 18, and let's go back there. Back in Psalm 18, he's wanting the Lord to be his love. In the midst of the boiling pot of life, he wants the Lord to be his rock, and he's tangibly doing that. He wants the Lord to be his fortress. Why does David have such a powerful, vivid testimony? Why did Corey Tenboom have such a powerful, vivid testimony as a teenager that didn't know much about the Lord? I remember listening to her thinking, this seems real. This seems like a woman who really walks with the Lord. I want that, Lord. Well, why? because it was in the midst of life she was making tangible decisions of what she was turning to to deal with the pressures of life. Here's what I'd like to do in conclusion. I want to challenge you to just think through the other metaphors there. The second word for rock is the Hebrew word for border or boulder. Uh, you can think through the implications of that. Uh, the word for horn is not a trumpet. The word for horn is like deer antlers. They represent strength in the Bible, that God is his strength. God is his horn of his salvation. You could look at Daniel 7 and 8 if you want to see how horn is used in the Bible. The Lord is his unassailable, undefeatable, unconquerable fort. That's what stronghold means. Think through the metaphors. And then, as the Puritans would say, take your soul to task. Ask yourself, what do you tend to make your rocks, your refuges, your fortresses in the midst of the pressure of life? Here's how I'd like to conclude. How do you practice this personally? Are there any clues in this psalm of David? What are some hints we can get of what can we do to have this type of testimony? Uh, so here's some things I'm seeing as hints in the text. I see David putting energy into relationship with the Lord. Uh, and these are going to all be Ps. He's pursuing the Lord. Uh, don't you see that? I mean, he's putting, this is not just passive. He's the Lord's ministering to him. He's act, actively pursuing relationship with the Lord. Listen to some of the words. I call upon the Lord. I love 
you, O Lord. He's crying to the Lord in the midst of his distress. There's energy being put into relationship with the Lord. This theme of pursuit is what we saw back in 1 Timothy. Go back there again and let's just look at that verse. And, and I can give you some parallel verses. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, David is warning, or Paul is warning us of the pursuits of our life. And he says this. This is the same as uh, 2 Timothy 2.22. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, but flee from these things, you man of God, and put energy into this. Pursue this. Chase this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. My soul has a tendency because of remnant sin. Romans 1.25 says, humans worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And even though I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I have remnant sin and remnant areas in my heart that still need to be sanctified, and I can be pulled that way, especially with the world all around me saying, you need this, you need this, you need this. This is where your security really is. And I have to fight against it and flee it and say, no, I'm going to pursue this. I'm not going to love money. I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to flee from those things. I'm going to pursue this. That's a theme throughout Scripture. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Uh, we see David practicing pursuing the Lord. So you know the question I'm going to ask. <laughs> what are you pursuing? What do the energies of your life show you that you're passionate about? What do the energies of life show you that you're, you're pursuing? Here's the second thing I see David doing in Psalm 18. There is an intensity to his prayer life. He practiced, so I told you, it's all peace. He's practicing passionate prayer. Uh, he's pursuing the Lord, and he's practicing passionate prayer. Uh, when I was first studying this passage a number of years ago, I asked myself, okay, Lord, I want you to be my refuge, but what does it mean to make you my refuge? I want that to be real. So in the midst of life, how do I make you my refuge? So I started studying every place the word refuge is used throughout the Psalms, and I'm going to show you a passage I came across, and it was like a light bulb went on. Psalm 62. And here's the point that I got from it, and you're about to see in Psalm 62, is that my prayer life indicates how dependent I am upon the Lord. Lack of prayer, you're just screaming out, I must not need the Lord. Your prayer life is a direct indicator of how dependent you are on the Lord. Listen to what Psalm 62 says, verse 5. My soul, talking to himself, my soul, wait in silence for God only. My hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. This all sounds really spiritual, but how do you do this, David? On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, and here it is, my refuge is in God. So how do you make God your refuge? My refuge is in God. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. My prayer life is an indicator of whether God's my refuge or not. Lack of prayer, lack of dependence. It's as simple as that. Passionate prayer, I'm dependent, Lord. I need you. Life's hard. I'm crying out. For your help. I'm not trying to live independent. I was not made, by the way, to be independent. We're made to, we are image bearers, made to reflect glory back to God. We're made to live in relationship with God. Lack of prayer life is showing I'm not living in that type of relationship. David practices passionate prayer. He's crying out to the Lord, and that really got my attention uh, this morning as I was meditating back down through these verses and praying David, as the mighty warrior, crying to the Lord. Uh, here's the man's man, and he's crying passionately to the Lord. What else does he do? You see him practicing promises. So more peace. He's practicing promises. He knows the character of God. Uh, he says, the Lord is my rock. 
So he knows the character of God that God, he's an inspired writer of scripture. He better know the character of God. He wrote over half the Psalms. He knows that God's a rock. He knows that God's a fortress. He knows that God's a deliverer. And he's telling his soul, I believe this. It's one thing to know a whole lot about the Bible. It's a whole nother thing. Or am I functioning in my daily life, living it out? He is taking the theology that he knows and telling his soul that he believes it. Now, that reminds me of a man who's now with the Lord named Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges wrote a wonderful book called Trusting God. It has to go on your must-read list if you haven't read it yet. Uh, it would be in my top five of books. Uh, Jerry Bridges says this, and I believe he nailed it because I've studied enough of the Hebrew words to know what Scripture says and what it means by a life of trust. Uh, Jerry Bridges says this, describing trust. Trust is not a passive state of mind, so it's not something that just happens to you. It's a vigorous act of the will. As John Piper would say, you've got to fight for it. It's a vigorous act of the will, whereby we choose to believe the promises of God in spite of the adversities that threaten to overwhelm us. Does that sound like Psalm 18? David, in the midst of the adversities that threaten to overwhelm him, is choosing, fighting with his soul. It's a vigorous act of the will. My inner person is not my best friend. <laughs> my inner, I have to fight with my inner person and tell my soul what to believe because my soul wants to believe all kinds of other things. So Bridges says it's not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the will whereby we choose to believe the promises of God in spite of the pressure, in spite of the adversities that threaten to overwhelm us. That is what made Corey Ten Boom's testimony real. That is what made David's testimony real. He's practicing the promises. And then the last point, he's practicing personal relationship. I'm sure you've already noticed it. I mentioned it before. He doesn't just say the Lord is my rock, believing the promises. He says the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. He could have just said the Lord is a rock. The Lord is a fortress. The Lord is a deliverer. And it would have been true. But he is making this intensely personal. If you count in the first three verses alone, my is used ten times. Ten times in three verses. In the first six verses, there are about 14 personal pronouns. That ought to get your attention of how intensely personal these psalms are. How do you practice this so that you can have a real testimony? Well, you're going to have to take your soul to task. You're going to have to know your tendencies. You're going to have to say, it's my tendency to turn to this type of thing to be my rock. It is my tendency to put my hope in that. And then I'm going to have to fight with my soul and say, no, I want a deep relationship with the Lord, and I know my tendencies, and I have to wake up every morning and do what I call daily maintenance. I know my soul so well that I know Ernie Baker has these temptations. Ernie Baker has these propensities. And I wake up every morning and I go, no, I'm not going to put my hope there today. I'm putting my hope here today. I can't, I have to flee that, and I need to pursue this. And I need to practice these promises. And I need to have a passionate prayer life. And I need to make this intensely personal. You know what will happen? People will start looking at your life and they'll, they'll start going, that's the kind of walk with the Lord that I want. They're going to see that this is not just religiosity. They're going to see that you really believe this because you are endeavoring to put your hope in the true and living God. Not just, you're not just a religious person. I'm going to give you a moment to pray, so I'd like to ask you to bow your heads, and I want to give you a moment just to talk to the Lord, and I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then I'm going to let you pray. What do you need to tangibly turn from, and what could you do with what you heard to turn to the Lord? So what do you need to tangibly turn from? What are your propensities? as your rocks, your fortresses, your hopes? What tend to be your refuges? Where do you tend to run and hide? Maybe think of um, one or two things you could do this week 
to purposefully turn from those and turn to the Lord. I'm going to be quiet for a moment. I'm going to let you talk to the Lord, and then I'll pray. Oh, Lord, it is so easy for us as frail creation to turn to the wrong hopes, the wrong deliverers, the wrong rocks, wrong refuges. But we, Lord, thank you that you want to be our rock, our refuge. You want to be the love of our life. We were made for relationship with you. We were made for something more. And we worship you that you've made this possible through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for each precious person here. Reassure them, Lord, that they can have a David-like testimony. Reassure them, Lord, that they can have a Corey Ten Boom-type testimony. And we worship you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.